if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Welcome to Horse Chats, and today we're talking to Jonna McLean again. So Jonna McLean's been on quite a few times before. He's a regular guest, and I love when Jonna comes on. He talks about all different subjects, all within horse training, very similar theme right through, but he's just got so much information. He goes right down into depth of that information. We're going to talk to him about um, cross-country today, about walking the course cross-country, because John has ridden at a high level and certainly competed at a high level, and we did talk about riding cross-country. We're going to talk about walking cross-country. John, are you there? I am here, Glenis. I'm, I'm well. How are you going? Well, looking forward to chatting to you again, and this time we're talking about actually walking cross-country and how we should walk it to get a better result, but just need to do a quick chat about the podcast. It's brought to us by International Horse College, and the mission of International Horse College is to improve the welfare of horses around the world through the safe education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So just have a look at the wide variety of horse courses now at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. So, Jonna, I know that horse welfare is very much at your forefront and in all your considerations, but all right through everything you teach. I just keep saying it's just you put it in such a logical format. You know that by the time you think, oh, I've got such a big problem, how am I going to handle it? And then we chat to you about it and you think, well, that was pretty logical. (laughs) That was worked out. Sure. So talking about doing our course walk, and I'm sure that you've walked a course with many of your students. So we're talking about hints. Now, this is a bit of preparation. And you talk about having a mountain bike. Now, to go out to do, you know, even if just a, a little one-day event or to do a three-day event, you're talking about a mountain bike. Why do we need a mountain bike and the measuring wheel when we're going to walk the course to go cross-country? We probably should outline this a bit more because we're, um, you know, for people that don't know what we're talking about cross-country, Tell us a little bit about how cross-country fits into eventing. Well, to talk about the history, it was actually all about the messenger in the war, being able to get a message from the front line back to the, uh, to the generals, being able to get really efficient communication systems. So they had to be able to cross whatever terrain in whatever conditions, usually under fairly adverse conditions that none of us had ever seen, in lightning speed, so then we could take action on the front line. So that's how cross country emerged. It was actually uh, a wartime communication system, and so these were the these were the riders of communication. So they were jumping and traversing all sorts of terrain that um, are not familiar to you and I. And that's how cross country emerged. So you know, and that's really what we're trying to do with our cross country horses in the modern day is find out how well they can traverse all these different obstacles in all these different terrain conditions and all these different contexts in time, on time, consistently. Okay, okay. So we're talking about the mountain bike. How long is the cross-country phase of the event? That's a really good question, Glenis, because from the lower levels when you start training, it may take you four minutes, five minutes, and then you can extend it right up to 12 minutes or longer. Because it's not so much the time frame, but really how 
how fast you need to be able to traverse all the terrain and all the obstacles in the given time because cross-country has penalties. So the penalties are if you are unable to negotiate an obstacle the first time you incur penalties, and that also takes time as well because then you have to circle around and then jump the obstacle and negotiate the obstacle again. So they have red flags and white flags and you have to pass between them. And then they also have options. So if you take options, it takes longer. But then you've got to make up the time in between. So the time allocated to it is the ideal time that they would like you to be able to take, not taking any options and being able to be safely ridden. And then that's a difficult question because if you have two inches of rain, then, of course, that changes all sorts of things. and and um, it changes the time frame. It's all really about really making sure that you can get your horse back in one piece on time. The time taken to negotiate the course is probably the least important thing. The most important thing is trying to give your horse a really comfortable, nice ride so it's actually not resisting you a whole lot and is actually really quite comfortable with negotiating all the obstacles and, and um, being able to cope with all the terrain and all the different contexts and build with uh, consummate ease would be the ideal. Okay, so the measuring wheel then, you, I suppose you, you're measuring the different options. That's why we take the measuring wheel with us to see which is the longer way and the shorter way and how much time we feel that we could save by going different ways. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So usually the options will take you the same amount of time that it would take if you had a refusal at option A, let's say the fastest route is option A and option B is, and in some of the senses will have various options. So you'll have option A will be the fastest route and then you'll take that and that's fine. But if you don't wish to take that and you take option B, it will cost you time and it will nearly cost you the same amount of time as a refusal. However, you won't have a refusal. So that's always a better outcome for the horse because it means that then the horse is able to read the obstacle, negotiate the obstacle, and then all we have to do is make up time. And that's why time is not important in training and establishing a good FUI horse. Um, it's really actually just making sure that the horse is really comfortable with what he sees and the rider is as well, and you're able to negotiate the obstacle and then go on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're walking across country, how many times? You know, you've said the mountain bike, so presuming that you, you ride the mountain bike to save your legs a bit when you're walking, but how many times should we be walking across country before we actually go out and ride it in a competition? Well, in saying that, I can say this in, um, in comical hindsight because there are quite a few times when I've walked across country several times, and I say several as in more than three times, and yet I've still missed it. And, and, and you don't want that to happen. And usually it happens when you're on multiple rides or you're distracted or you've got too many thought processes going on. But really, you want to walk at a minimum of three times because the first one is just an orientation walk where you're just trying to find out where do I go, what comes through in what order, where are they placed, and you're just having an overall look. And your second walk is really all about now starting to get into the technical details how will my horse go with this related thing because these strides are short or they're long or they're on a curve or they involve water or whatever it is. You're just trying to find out from this course, second course walk, 
how is my horse going to see this? How is he going to react? So it's a bit of a mind game for the rider because often the mind game for the rider is much, much larger than it is for the horse. And many times I'm speaking to many, many riders and having been um, uh, cross-country rep and, and taken public tours through cross-country courses, they'll ask you, uh, what do you think your horse will do? Or what do you think will happen here? And often you're wrong, because when you walk the course once or twice, you embellish the uh, difficult pieces, but as you walk it more frequently, you become more comfortable. And it's actually then, that's why I encourage people to walk as often as possible, run it, jog it, ride it on a bike, whatever, but to try and become so familiar with it that you are really relaxed in your riding and you're not expecting a problem because I think sometimes we expect a problem and we upset our horse by doing something a little bit different cross-country because we expect a problem. When if you actually stay relaxed and stay focused, Usually the horse knows his job at that level and he will just jump it for you regardless, even if it's slightly out of context. Okay. Now, in that second walk, you know, the first one's just the orientation and socialisation, I suppose, with the other competitors, but that second walk, what can go wrong? What sort of critical aspects are we looking at within that second walk? That, you know, I mean, the weather, do we worry about the weather? Yes, well, uh, nowadays, even the fantastic nowadays, we can just hit our iPhone and find out what's happening over the next 24 hours, and it's probably 90, 95% right. Whereas in the early days, it wasn't really like that. You had to rely on the, on the weather forecast and find out whether it was going to rain, when it was going to rain. So the second walk is all about, am I walking the course at the same time as which I'm going to ride it? That's what I'd really like to do. I want to find out where the shadows are. I would really like to find out what's going to happen. Whereabouts in the field am I? Am I number 57 out of 60? In which case, all these lovely pieces of grass are now going to be mud because we're going to get an inch of rain overnight. So traction is going to change. Footing is going to change, of course, which is the same. But we really want to try and say, okay, if option A, when I come into it, doesn't look good, can I immediately and understand and execute option B without a second thought? And that's the thing is that we have so many tricky things now that just may not be huge and may not be scary, but they're tricky. They're placed in a tricky situation. They're placed in tricky circumstances. So we have to be really ready to say, no, this does not look like how I walked it. I'm going to take option B, and that will be probably... Or well, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the option B will be a, a track less travelled. So that's one variation. And then of course the other one is is when we walk these, we're now adding the crowd, we're adding people, we're adding the atmosphere. Whereas when we walk it, there's no people there. But now there's people with umbrellas and there's kids and people cheering for you and cameras and all sorts of fanfare. And it changes it for the horse, but it changes it for the rider a little bit because it distracts them. You don't need any distraction. So you need to really understand what your options are and can you switch back over to those options with, um, you know, in a microsecond because you don't have time. You, you're travelling at speed, especially if you're a guy, you really need to know exactly where you are at all times and what your options are. Because it's all about plan not just A, but plan B and plan C. 
Okay, and you talked about the weather forecast, you know, if you get an inch of rain overnight and how the footing is going to vary. What about studs? Do you put studs in? Can you tell us a little bit about studs? Because um, there's just not enough knowledge about when to use them, not to use them, what type to use, how many to use. Okay. For me, studs was all about understanding a horse's maximum traction and a horse's maximum traction with its foot to shape the way that it is, the way that a a good thoroughbred will shape the foot is complete wedge, and that wedge is designed to be able to stop in an instant because that's what stops in really low traction conditions such as mud, such as slop, um, you know, boggy conditions. I'm talking about. So, however, the trouble with studs um, is that you can't change the studs for different parts of the track. Once the studs are put in. You can't come in and just change the tyres like a Formula One racing car because now it's weather, uh, now it's sunny and the weather's changed. You can't do that like a Formula One car. The studs that you put in at the start are the studs you're committed with. So those studs, will those studs handle the mud? Will they handle when you're travelling on top of the ground because the ground is now hard because maybe you're riding over the crest of the hill with good drainage? Or you're going across a surface which is basically just uh, bricky sand across blue metal, which is sometimes how we go across bitumen roads. So I need to know how I worked it out was what are the boggiest situations that my horse is likely to encounter with the most tricky fences where I need the most traction. That's what dictated my studs always. It wasn't about whether how well he was going in the ideal conditions. It was actually the worst part on the course that will get the most boggy when it was most choppy up in the worst conditions. That's what I had to cope with. So that call is made by the rider, and then the rider then says to the brooms, or if they, I mean, I was always a person that I like to get involved in doing my own studying anyway because um, I just felt comfortable with that, is that I would um, put in the studs that I thought were the best call, and you don't always get it right. So from a studying point of view, I always want to make sure that my studs are symmetrical. And what I mean symmetrical is, is they're bilaterally symmetrical. So the studs that I have on the near side or the outside of the horse compared to the inside were exactly the same because I do not want that foot to turn. So if I was running road studs, I'd run road studs on the uh, near side side, um, heel and also the medial side of the heel as well. So the inside and the outside of the heel, same size studs. I'd never run... Um, studs that were a different size from the inside to the outside because that would cause a foot twist. And that's really, that's not good for the horse. That's not what he needs in nature. He needs true straight line traction. Just that last bit about the studs, John, I think that's going to be some very valuable information. You know, I've talked to quite a few eventers on the chat and we're sort of, you know, well over the, getting on 700 now. You know, we, we're quite a few in and talk to lots of eventers, lots of people that ride in cross-country. I don't think we've had a conversation about studs before, so I think that information itself is brilliant. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry... If you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career.
With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Just going, you know, thinking about, we've talked about the final course walk, you know, and just sort of seeing the obstacles, you talked about the same sun angle and the problematic obstacles, but the terrain, what should we look at specifically in the terrain? And where the obstacles are placed as well, because the same jump at the bottom of the hill or halfway up at the top of the hill or on a slope or whatever, is going to be a different jump because just because you've seen that type of jump, it's certainly going to be different with different terrain. So if you can talk about that and what we should be looking for, you know, in the approach, departure, uh, whatever, about the terrain. Okay, so this also comes down to a little bit my department and the horse behaviour. So if my horse starts off a little bit feisty, which they often do, because, uh, you know, you put the cross-country saddle on and blah, 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 and you're opening around the horses, and the horse is a bit like the start of a stable chase race, a little bit fired up and a little bit um, uncontrollable in the stock department. So you end up having to just manage the horse how it is. So in your final walk, you're really looking for any of the terrain where you think that your horse will need to see the obstacle for longer so we can read it clearly. So the more time the horse, the longer you'll need. And the earlier the course, the longer it will take you to get him in control to be able to see the obstacle. So I did wear a watch, but I never, ever took any notice of it because for me, I just kept reading my horse. If I was on time, I never set, never in my life did I set minute markers because I did not want to be harassed by an electronic object. I wanted to make sure my horse was comfortable and I just read my horse and we were going at the pace that I thought was probably his capability. So, you know, I was a bit different to everybody else. They would have lots of stuff written up their arms and multiple watches on their wrists and stuff like that. I would have a watch and, and occasionally I'd have a glance at it and say, yeah, I'm halfway. Yeah, I'm going okay here. This is okay. And that's all I would look at it. I wouldn't get too preoccupied. But for me, it was really all about making sure that this was a safe journey home. You know, I never, ever had an accident cross country in terms of me having to, um, you know, uh, have somebody else take my horse away and stuff like that. And that was because I think that I just stayed in tune with my horse. And that's how I trained. I just wanted to make sure that he read the terrain. So let's say, for example, I'm going halfway through the course and there's an outward sloping um, left-hand corner to a right-hand sloping hill. And then I had to jump an upright. So it's now rained an inch of rain overnight. I'm not going to take the contour line along that hill to be able to do that vertical because the, the, the hill to the right, my curve is to the left, and it's a vertical. So I'm going to need to make sure that I've got all my traction sorted and that the horse can read the obstacle. So I might choose to ride down the hill a little bit further than most so I can get more straight strides onto the vertical just to guarantee his traction. So I'm a little bit late. I don't mind. I, it does worry me a little bit. So I think the most important thing about the third, fourth and fifth course walks, what is going to happen when we throw an inch of rain on there if this is going to happen? Because in the summer, we don't have to worry about that. It will just be a degree of hardness. So there's a choice as to the rider as to how fast you go on the terrain. 
whether they've aerated the, the track or not, etc., etc. But largely, it's all about the speed. Whereas an inch of rain overnight, and you've walked it, and the traction is 100% perfect all the way around the track, but now you've had an inch of rain, and now everybody's worried. So we have to read our horse and, and according to the conditions, and also as to how much resistance he is likely to put to us because he's a little bit feisty or he's a little bit scared or he's just had a little bit of a stop and he's a bit uh, he's a bit unnerved and a bit rattled. That's the time, you know, the moment I have a, have a refusal or anything like that, that's it. The watch goes straight out the window. I don't even think about that. I say, I want to give, I want to nurse this home. I want to really, I want to make sure I return home. That's, that's the object. Cross country is all about getting home. Time is a very secondary thing and that's where a lot of people get it wrong. You know, they yahoo them out of the start box, upset the horse. The horse associates cross country with adrenaline and then they have a horse that actually will do um, all sorts of silly things at the start of the course, yeah. Okay. You said then about the third, fourth and fifth time. So is that normal? Like, you know, because we did talk about a minimum of three. Do you normally walk third, fourth and fifth or is that if you're riding a couple of different horses? Yes, well, um, probably between five and seven times if I'm riding multiple horses because when I'm riding multiple horses, I'll switch from one track to another track. So in other words, I'll be walking halfway around the three-star and then I'll say, yeah, I want to have a look at that two-star fence again so you'll switch back over to that. And um, uh, there's no problems with doing that because you're familiarising yourself with the two-star obstacles and the three-star obstacles in the one track. But then when you start to hone it down after course walk three, you will be just be walking and saying, okay, now I'm going to go out and I'm going to ride my bike as fast as I can possibly ride it around the uh, three-star track so I can get a feel for how these objects emerge when I hurtle down the hill, you know, at 660 metres a minute. And then I've got to do a little bit of a stage to be able to jump this um, galloping on heads to the left or whatever you're doing. So the track is actually a way of you being able to get a feel of how the terrain passes you, which is, you know, I know it's only 20, 25% of what the horse's speed is going to do, but it gives you a bit of a feel of how things come up, the speed in which things come up. And and that was important to me whenever I could do that, whenever the course was uh, able to be offered uh, with a mountain bike. I, I really liked that a lot. I've got to pedal through these trees really fast because there's, Lots of tracks and lots of options, and there's lots of fences everywhere. I have to have to know exactly where to go. Yeah, yeah. I think you know that's something that we didn't talk about before was the mountain bike. It was almost like, oh, you save your legs, but you know the riding at speed and going and and having an idea of how the obstacles will appear when you're going that bit faster. That's certainly a benefit rather than just walking the course on by foot. Exactly, Glass. And the other thing that a mountain bike always did for me. And I couldn't always do this because some of the cross-country uh, competitions like Camperdown, it's not really doable by a mountain bike. No one ever rides a mountain bike around that. It's on a, it's on a crater, so it's probably very steep. But, um, you know, some people used to jog it, which I really admired that. I was never really capable of jogging the course. But you, trying to take it at some sort of speed gives you a feel for that. But the other thing that the mountain bike did for me, it meant that I didn't get disturbed and caught up with other riders that would distract me. And I was easily distracted. I don't need distractions. I don't mind on my first course walk having a bit of a yak, a bit of a catch-up, a bit of a socialise, blah, 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 and, and all the rest of it. But from then on, I need to make sure my mind is on the job because there are so many details to, 
thinking about, and there are so many things that potentially could worry you. The only thing to stop you from worrying is is, is deepen your familiarisation with it, and then your training will kick in. So that's what we're trying to do here. All we're trying to do here is that all the tracks have done to this point, training should kick in if you can stay focused. When we're doing this course walk, you know, you talked earlier about making up time. You know, some parts of the course are going to cost you time, some parts of the course you try and make up times. What areas or what parts of the course are we looking for where we can save some time? How can we ride that a bit different and go, right, I'm going to make up some time right here or this is going to cost me time if I take this route, even though it's the best one for the horse. I'm going to take this one it's going to be the best one for the horse, but then how are we going to, you know, what what sort of things are we looking for that are either going to cost us time or we can make up time? It's a good question, Glenn, because it depends on the horse. So if I'm on a really nippy little thoroughbred and I can make up time through a combination because I know that he's very nippy, I've got a few strides and I can make up time through this really complex array of fences, which may include, may include you know, three or four, fence numbers with multiple combinations at a very, very busy time, and you get those in clusters of time, that my thoroughbred will actually be able to just nip in and out of there and is really well balanced, very short-footed. I can make up time there. But on the other horses, my my big striding horses, my larger horses, that can actually just really do the ground really well and not necessarily fast, but they can really open their stride up and on good length of stride. Then those are the horses that I can make up ground between the fences because they are so relaxed. I can open that stride right up. I can eat the ground and I can do an absolute steady and half foot on a ripping three strides out and then ping off an upright and then I can wind him up again. So it depends on the horse's build and what his natural propensities are as to where to make up ground on the course. I, I wish it was a straightforward answer, but it's just not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just thinking that what you've said, all the points there, you know, you're putting together and, you know, they mix up a bit, you know, one goes over the other. But I know that we certainly, if we particularly if we're doing our first course walk, we can't be in a hurry doing this. It's really important to do it properly, do it at least three times, you know, but there's so many considerations there. Now, can I butt in there and just say, yes, that actually re- reminded me of something really important because so many times, I can't say how many times, is that if I can't close my eyes and visualize every single fence that I've negotiated on this horse on that track and I'm pretending that I'm riding it and I can't visualize it straight away, I turn around and walk back to that fence every single time. And that's what I would do the night before cross country. We haven't talked about that. The night before cross country, I didn't sleep. I don't think anybody really slept. I don't think I ever spoke to a rider who said, oh, you know, did you sleep really well the night before? You don't. So you've got so much stuff going through your head, much more than you do before the first night of the show, jumping. So because it's so much more testing, you know, three-day eventing is actually all about cross country, or eventing is all about cross country. So... It means that the night before, you would visualize every single fence on this horse, every single tussock, every single fence post, every single turn, how you're going to ride it, what lead you'd like him on, or how you would like to present to the fence, and where is uh, option uh, B for this one that has a black, dying black stripe on it? Where's, where's option B? Can I get that off? And you almost always 
to sleep. I always used to make a promise to myself that it didn't really go well for my writing until I could do this same thing in all three phases. Visualize my dress and visualize my show jumping. I mean, you don't get a chance to do that in show jumping so often because sometimes your show jumps straight out to cross country. But generally speaking, cross country, you would have your dress up, then you would sleep, and then you'd wake up and you'd do cross country. So you might do show jumping and do cross country. But you wouldn't sleep, or I wouldn't sleep, until I'd had a really clear plan in my head of what my ideal line was cross-country. And I can't tell you how much that helped me. I may not have got much sleep that night, but that doesn't matter. I can sleep the following night. Um, but it really, really helped me understand. It's quite amazing when you visualise and you know your horse so well that you can actually do that. I, I'm, I actually miss that. I miss that. That's something that I really... Loved a lot. It would help me then put those two images together, the virtual image and the actual image. Mm-hmm. There's so much to think about, you know. And also, I think that was a really important point about you can go out, you can walk the course, go, yep, I'm going to do this, but you've got to have that plan B so that if everyone in front of you in the draw comes up, the footing's going to be going to change and you might be able to come into it and say, oh, gee, this footing is really muddy now. It's really, there's been a few horses stopped, they've slid into it, it's just not very pretty at all. What's option B? I think that's something to have in mind, yeah. And also too, you know, and this is going back to last month, is when we talked about the horses, you know, and have they seen this type of obstacle before? Have you seen it a similar one? You know, whether they've just been training and I think you talked about sort of having the jumps, all the technical jumps, but mini, you know, tiny little ones, but still lots of variety there. So it's Reading, you know, is the horse having difficulty reading that obstacle? Have they seen something? Has it been similar? You know, maybe a bit different, but similar. There's so much to think about there. And you're thinking about your training as you're walking the course as well. And as you said, every horse is different. But you've got to be thinking, you've got to know your horse a bit within their training to be able to walk this course properly. That's exactly right, because if if you don't know your horse and you just don't know in the in the past, we used to call these cat rides where we would basically just get contacted by an owner or maybe a rider owner, and they would just say, excuse me, can you ride my horse to the competition? And they'd nominate you as a rider. And you don't have necessarily have ridden that horse before. You can just come out, have a bit of a feel on the day, no worries, all good, go into the dressage arena, and then you take it across country, and you didn't really know what was going on. That was, that was actually really, really tough. But knowing the horse means that he will give you these little subtle signs. Oh, well, he doesn't really feel how he normally does by fence fire. Okay, cool. Watch out the window. Let's just cruise around this track. Let's just get him home. Let's take a few options. And when he starts to feel as if he's flying on and he's in sync with me, then maybe we can start to take some of the optional obstacles. So, you know, you've got to be prepared. I think that the problem is that the, 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 the sport has got to the point where we are all just going like lemons to the, uh, to the blue, blue sash and the mistake. I think that everybody that makes it home with their horses in one piece should be given a medal. I always thought that. I think that anybody that completes the track, you know, because it's a fairly hard task. You're taking a horse and hopefully you've covered all the bases. And then you're going to jump 37 or 40 obstacles in an unfamiliar area. That's a big task. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose too, knowing the horse and having worked and trained the horse, you know how the fitness is because you'll know when they, if they're getting a bit tired and and less responsive, you know, in that last part of the course. But yeah, if you if you've been training the horse, you know their fitness level. Then when you're walking the course, you're going to know how they're going to be feeling. Well, that's right. Um, we haven't really talked about that. And as we get into the last third of the course, you're on a horse whose fitness is maybe really pushing it here because the terrain and the conditions, because the conditions in the terrain will push the fitness. Is that now the response of the horse are going to get a bit slower? You're a bit more tired as a rider, so you're less observant, you're less quick to react. You're probably not reacting as appropriately as you should because you're all a bit delayed as well. So, you know, giving yourself a little bit more time, your horse a little bit more time is the key. You know, I'm, I've never been a fan about um, riding against the clock. I don't think it's about that. I think it's a completion myself. But anyway, maybe I'm old-fashioned. Well, I think that you've always got these ethical considerations. You know, you're always thinking about the horse, thinking about the horse welfare. And you've said before, you know, not don't be afraid to take the options. Understand your options. Always, Always get it. And you're better to have time faults than jumping faults. I think those are important points, you know, when you're walking the course, to remember that. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose if there's a takeaway, you've just got to compete it safely. The horse has got to have good memories and the horse is going to be out. Also, the trot-up. We haven't talked about the trot-up, making sure they're sound for show jumping the following day. So if you nurse them around and look after them and and are considerate of the horse, you've got a far better chance of the the trot-up and having them sound. Yeah. Oh, well, you know how we were talking about, we haven't talked about the management, we talked about management of fear in the, um, in the nurse rider in, in a previous episode, but now I'm managing fear of myself, fear of, my own, of myself, and I think that the biggest fear that I ever had in the old format, which is where we had the stable chase roads and traction and stable chase down cross country, um, was after the cross country was actually doing the second trial. That was so scary for me. That was way more scary than across country. Was hoping my horse would be would be passed, and uh, there'd be so many riders out there could relate to that. For me, the trot up is oh, that, that's it. Keeps your heart in your mouth. It really does. Yeah, yeah. John, are really important considerations when walking the cross country phase, and I think what you've what you've brought to the listeners today, you know, as again your, your general message right through has been about looking after the horse, horse welfare, training the horse very logically, and now we've taken through, and this is the walking the cross country phase, but it's important to walk the course properly so that then you can ride the course properly. Thanks again for your time, John. Lots of great information there, and. Um, Lots of information that we haven't heard before from other guests as well, which is always important. So thank you for coming on, and hopefully we'll catch up again next time. My pleasure, Glenn. It's always a pleasure in um, listening and and asking good questions. I look forward to the next episode. Okay. Talk to you soon, Jonna. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.